in week two of this series on Gideon, so we're going to get into episode number two. Let's uh, pause, though, first. Let's have a word of prayer. Let's ask God to be part of the process and the conversation today. God, we ask that you would uh, be opening up hearts today, that you would do the work that I certainly cannot do, transformative work, the work on the inside, the work in the heart. And God, I ask that you would um, uh, help the church to rise up and come into our great calling because we'll learn a lesson from Gideon. So God, you be the teacher today. And we've come aside, set aside this time for you. God, we ask that you would speak through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, uh, it's, it's trendy these days. I don't know if you noticed this, but I think it's trendy to be infatuated again with communism. You know, like maybe Marx was onto something is what a lot of people are thinking, but I think those people tend to forget uh, how totalitarian and thought control has been every communist experiment of the last hundred and so years. Uh, in fact, Alexander Solzhenitsyn might cure you of this fascination if you just read his works because he writes a lot about the extent to which this thought control uh, went on inside of communist Russia. And he writes about it in his gripping nonfiction. You could pick it up, The Gulag Archipelago. In 1938, uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn attended a Communist Party conference in Moscow. And what was going on there was a brand new district party overseer was being installed. He was replacing one who had been arrested and whisked away to like, you know, Siberia or someplace. So at the end of the conference, there was the customary uh, tribute to Comrade Stalin. And what happens next would be hilarious if it wasn't, you know, actual history. So I quote now from the Gulag Archipelago. Of course, everyone stood up. The hall echoed with stormy applause, rising to an ovation for three Minutes, four minutes, five minutes, it continued. It was becoming unsufferably silly, even to those who adored Stalin. However, who would dare to be the first to stop? The secretary of the district party could have done it. He was standing on the platform, and it was he who had just called for the ovation. But he was a newcomer, and he had just taken the place of a man who had been arrested. He was afraid. So in the obscure small hall, the applause went on. Six, seven, eight minutes. The director of the local paper factory, an independent and strong-minded man, stood with the podium. Aware of all the falsity of the situation, he kept on applauding. Nine minutes. Ten. In anguish, he watched the secretary of the district party, but the latter dared not stop. Insanity to the last man till they were carried out of the hall on stretchers. Then, after eleven minutes, the director of the paper factory assumed a business-like expression and sat down in his seat, and oh, a miracle took place. To a man, everyone else stopped dead and sat down. They had been saved. That, however, was how they discovered who the independent people were and eliminated them. That same night, some nice men from the Department of Internal Affairs arrested that factory worker. They pasted 10 years on him on some pretext, but after he had signed Form 206, the final document of the interrogation, his interrogator reminded him, and I love this quote, don't ever be the first to stop applauding. Don't ever be the first to stop applauding. That, friends, is a picture of the power of conformity. That is the picture of the power of peer pressure. It can be absolutely overwhelming. When everyone else around you is marching to the beat of the same drummer, a particularly insane drummer as the case may be, would you ever be the first to stop applauding? Everyone's cheering madly. Would you be the first to sit down? 
Well, maybe, you say, if I was like confronting some slacktivist on Facebook, but what if, what if everybody who's surrounding you and applauding is part of your own family, part of the people that you love and you trust? Well, with those questions in mind, we come now to the second episode in the story of Gideon. And here is where the story really is turning because it's where God asks a timid man against the cheering of his own culture, even his own family, to be the first to stop applauding. So let's look into this, shall we? You might remember just a little review from last week. So we began to be introduced by Gideon as a man who was confronted by the messenger of God. This is from Judges chapter 6. And the messenger of God has called him out of the wine press where he's threshing wheat into a great destiny. And here's how it's put to him by the messenger of God. I will be with you and you will strike down Midian as if it were one man. Now at this point in the conversation, uh, Gideon is suspecting, the Bible says, that though the man in front of him seems like a man, he must be more than a man. Like more even than a prophet. Like this is not just a regular human interaction. He's starting to suspect that you say, how would someone know something like that? Well, he doesn't know. I, I said He suspects. And so he asks for a sign. The next words, Judges 6, verse 17. Give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Now, read that three times without laughing, I dare you. (laughs) Is it really you talking to me? I mean, if you're talking to someone, it's probably them that's talking to you, right? But what's going on? It's not like he's assuming some ventriloquism is going on. He's looking into the idea that this might be God behind the words. When he says it's really you talking to me, what he means is, is it really God talking to me? I mean, basically, you look like a man, but you're talking for God, and so I want to know if the voice that presents as God's is really God's. That's what he's saying. So he seeks a sign. And by the way, that's going to be our topic next week. We are going to dive into that whole idea of asking God for signs. Have you ever, who's asked God for a sign before in the room? Hands up. Okay, so everybody, right? We say, God, if you want me to marry this person, go to this school, do this thing, take this direction, please show me a sign. Give me a sign, right? And so we'll look at that next week and when that's good and when that's bad. But this is the first of the signs that he asks for. And so he goes home to get an offering and then he does in fact get the first sign. Here it is. After the food offering is prepared, the angel of God touches it with a staff, it bursts into flames, and then poof, the messenger is gone. I mean, he just disappears. The Hebrew text says he, um, he is gone before his eyes. So this is his sign. He's like, yes, this is God. God has been speaking to me. It was God. And so next verse, verse 22. When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he cried out, oh, sovereign Lord, I'm doomed. I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. So he thinks, I'm going to die. And you say, that's weird. Like, why would he make that assumption? You know, he's had a wild interaction, of course, but why would he think that he's going to die? I'll tell you why. Because the Jews believed that no one could ever see God and live. Why not? Because God was so perfect, so holy. He dwelt in such unapproachable majesty and perfection that if any fallen, fallible, sinful human would ever come into actual visceral contact with this God, that would be the end of them. It would be judgment on the spot. To see God was to come under a death sentence because to see God was to come under God's righteous judgment. That's how they looked at it. But what does God say to this response? Oh no, I'm going to be judged right here on the spot. I'm, I'm out, I'm going to be dead. 
Here's what he says next verse, verse 23. It's all right, the Lord replied. Do not be afraid. You will not die. Now you can't miss this. This is unbelievably important. And you might just like pass over it and just say, okay, well, he allayed his fears about dying. No, it's more than that. At this moment, Gideon is converted. He has been converted. See, Gideon's spiritual life up to this point has basically been uh, a sort of mild agnosticism or maybe rough deism. That's basically his worldview up to this point. Yes, he's a Jew, but his belief in God is merely clinical. There might be a God, maybe. And if this God exists, he's out there, maybe, but he's absolutely uninvolved. If he does exist, this God has abandoned us. That's Gideon's spiritual life up to this point. And so that's probably why it takes a very direct means of communication to get his attention, right? And even then he's a bit slow on the uptake. But now once woe, Gideon uh, can now sense and feel God move in his spirit, these nudges of God that are now less conventional, or more, sorry, more conventional. I mean, let's face it, you know, an angel meeting you and then burning up a fire and disappearing, that's not conventional. That's not the normal way that God speaks to us. But now Gideon is woke, And he is ready to hear God's voice in more conventional ways, the ways you would hear God, the ways that I would hear God, in nudges and moves and and insight from God's revelation and visions and dreams and so forth. And so after the angel of the Lord disappears, Gideon is tuned to heaven and this is what he hears. He hears, you've seen me, yes, but you're going to live. I won't judge you, we're friends. You have to understand that that's what's being said here. It is powerfully being communicated here. And every Christian in this room, you can resonate with this. This is, the, this is the conversion moment for all of us. This is the moment when through sacrifice, you realize God's not going to judge you. The sacrifice, in our case, of course, is the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Himself. And through this debt payment on our behalf, we, who don't deserve or could never earn the right of standing in the presence of God, are going to be deemed acceptable. You will be accepted in the eyes of the Almighty Holy One of Israel through sacrifice. And there will be peace, like you'll be reconciled. And then you'll go from Gideon in this conversion moment, from knowing some things about God to knowing God. And what do you call that transfer? From death to life, from knowing about to knowing. What do you call that? You can call that being born again. Jesus would use that term in John chapter 3, because it's a work of God's Spirit on the inside to transform someone from this sort of bland, I believe some things maybe. There's design in the universe, there's a moral design inside the human spirit, so it's, it's kind of undeniable to say that there's a designer. But if so, he's removed, he's distant, he's not involved in my life, and then all of a sudden, bam, now you know him. And like Gideon, it changes the ball game. Today, some of you might be able to identify with Gideon on either side of that line. Like, I bet you that there's someone in a room this size that you just say, you know, my spiritual life is kind of like that. I kind of maybe would describe myself maybe in deistic terms, maybe grew up in the church a little bit, have some of the beliefs. Uh, You could accept the idea that there's a designer to this whole thing. You're in investigation mode if you were being real, real honest with yourself this morning. And maybe you sit right where Gideon sat. There's a lot of skepticism that still rises up in you and And maybe God's already begun the the turning of the gears that's going to move you 
to this critical moment where you turn from knowing some things about God, maybe He exists, to knowing God. Being reconciled to God. Being at peace with God. Because friends, that's all the Christian story is about. So uh, this week, uh, it was just a, an incredible pr- privilege I had of leading someone across that line of faith in a prayer. And we talked about it in those terms. We just talked about it in terms of being reconciled to God. Are you reconciled to God? Because maybe you're like Gideon and say, if I ever saw God, that would be the end of me. That would be the end of me. But what if, what if God had made a way for you to be reconciled with Him and you could know Him and you could be at peace with God and His Spirit resonated with that good news? He responded, he prayed, I think the first prayer out loud he had ever prayed. And afterwards, he looked me in the eye and said, I'm all in. I'm all in. You know, that's conversion, right? You go from hedging your bets about Jesus. Yeah, he might have been a good guy. Might have been a great teacher. Uh, You know, I like the Sermon on the Mount. To Master, Lord, Savior, Rescuer. Right? It's, a, it's just this monumental conversion, this great shift. You go from hedging your bets to, I'm all in. And the question is, will you? Well, the result of that moment, I can tell you from personal experience, will be that God will grant you peace, and that's exactly what He granted to Gideon. A, a deep and an and abiding peace that goes kind of beyond your understanding or ability to explain. And we know that because the next thing that happens when God speaks that word over him, you will not die. The next thing that happens is he makes an altar to God and here's what he names it. Yahweh Shalom. And some of you know enough you know, rudimentary Hebrew to know exactly what that means. Yahweh Shalom. The Lord is peace. The Lord is peace. And the Bible tells us that his countrymen erected a monument there. They remembered that spot for generations because not only did it transform one man whose soul was converted, but it transformed the destiny of an entire nation. So, now that Gideon is tuned in, God speaks again. And with the rest of our time, I want to draw lessons out of what happens next in the story. This is Judges chapter 6, 25. That night, the Lord said to Gideon, take the second bull from your father's herd, the one that is seven years old, pull down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole standing beside it. And so Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord had commanded, and one member from the band. But he did it at night because he was afraid of the other members of his father's household and the people of the town. Okay, so four lessons I want to pull out of this. Number one, look at that phrase, that night. He's just been converted. When is this happening? That night. That night. Do not be surprised that very soon, when you come into faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, very soon after conversion moment, when your spirit is woke, very soon you are going to get that first sense of commission. Because let's face it, friends, you don't come to Jesus unless you come turning. And if you come turning, that means there's already going to be action. Faith-inspired action that's going to come out of that. There's no work involved in turning. You just are turning from a life lived apart from God to a life lived for Him. But friends, you can just bet that right after the turning, there's going to be something placed in front of you, some faith-based action. And what might that be for you? What, What has God put in front of you that is your faith turned into action like now? Like not next week, not next month, you know, not next year. You know, I'm going to maybe put it in my five-year plan that I'm going to get a few things, you know, squared away. With No, that night, that night, faith is going to inspire action 
immediately. But now here's the second lesson. The commission is what? To knock down idols. Now, if you are here last week, you're just going, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. The commission is to destroy Midian. I thought that was the vision. Like, that's the big picture vision, right? Remember his frustration with Midian and the political situation and the oppression and the abuse of power and the whole thing, and God taps him on the shoulder and says, you will be the great liberator. What does this, tearing down idols, have to do with that? Like, I thought that that was where we were headed, but now suddenly there's a new, like, this seems like a distraction, doesn't it? It seems like a little, you know, side mission that's unrelated. It is related, and I'll tell you why. I alluded to this last week, uh, that the religion of the Canaanites was basically a fertility cult. And now for the sake of the little ones in the room, I'm going to use big words so that you all understand what I'm getting at with this fertility cult, and maybe um, it'll go over the heads of others, okay? Baal was the senior god in the Canaanite religion. And they had a whole mythology about what the gods did. And in the heavens, Baal was, uh, had several lovers, uh, among them his sister, Anut. And uh, there was also an adulterous affair that he carried on, or it was a marriage, depending on when in Canaanite history you get it. It was a constantly evolving story. Uh, but uh, he also had a marriage or an adulterous affair with a goddess named Asherah. So she was his consort, among others. Baal was in charge of rain which they believed came when the gods copulated in heaven. So, to encourage fertile crops and large herds, the Canaanites would come to shrines, which they had built on hilltops, and usually in the presence of a large and growing tree. And, and so they would come there, and there would be a tiki, or some kind of idol-like thing, a bull-like idol often that represented Baal, and a pole or a tree that represented Asherah, and often carved to resemble a phallic likeness. So... It was pornography. So that's basically it. It's ancient pornography is going on here on these ancient shrines of the fertility cult. Okay? At these shrines, they would engage in intercourse with shrine prostitutes or watch priests do same. And sometimes, if they really wanted God's blessing and they were super committed, they would bring their children, small babies, up to four years of age, and they would be offered up on the Baal altar and be slaughtered. And so you'd get a serious blessing from Baal if you brought your children. Now, as you can see, the fertility cult and the entire idolatrous situation is morally bankrupt, right? You say, well, that's morally bankrupt. You say, well, that's because they're morally bankrupt because they were, they were so disobedient to the will of the gods. Like, they, they did all, all that the gods would, had forbade. Uh, no, actually, it's the exact opposite. They did these things because Baal did these things. You always live up or down, men and women. You will live up or down to your impression of God. What's God to you? Like, you know, sort of a tolerant, sort of Santa Claus deity? That's, that's how you'll live. Is God like a stern policeman to you? And that's how you'll live. Is God a fornicating, you know, uh, polygamist? Incestuous polygamist? Then that's how you'll live. And so bestiality, incest, pedophilia, adultery, and infanticide were what you did because that's what the gods did. And Israel had absorbed all these idols and, and all the attendant practices that went with them. So now maybe you know, now maybe you know why God 
was so exercised about idolatry, why he demanded the tearing down of altars. Suddenly that doesn't seem so intolerant anymore, does it? Suddenly that seems like love. Suddenly that seems like God is concerned about us and our progeny forever. But again, you say, well, what does that, again, what does this have to do with Midianites oppressing Israel for seven years and and Gideon's call to be a liberator? It shows that God knows that there are two enemies oppressing Israel right now. Number one is the enemy without, and that is the, the Midianites. But number two is the enemy within, and that's Baal worship. And Israel was soaked in it. Gideon was raised in it. Baal was just second nature to Israel. They had amalgamated him into their pantheon of gods. In fact, there's some evidence that shows that they thought that El, their god, the Israelite god, had married Asherah at some point. They just put it all into a big potpourri, idolatrous stew. And as you can see, as you can see, um, this was the enemy within. Now think about this. If you were in Gideon's family, and I had pointed the enemy without. I had pointed out the enemy without. I had said, down with Midian. What would happen? I would have got cheers all around. Everybody raising glasses and toasts and say, yeah, down with Gideon or Midian. <laughs> Not down with Gideon. Down with Midian. Down with Midian. Down with oppression. Down with unfair exploitation. Down with abuse of power. Down with abuse of camels. The whole thing. But if I had pointed out the enemy within, would I have gotten the same applause? If Gideon's first message is down with Midian, everybody applauds. But Gideon's first message is not that. Gideon's first message is down with Baal. Down with Baal and the sex and religion cult that you have absorbed, all of you, to justify your own selfish indulgence. God tells Gideon that his first job is to attack and oppose the enemy within. Well, there's a lesson for you, my friend. Because every single one of us here who follows Jesus in this room feels like, I think God's probably calling me something. Like there's so many parts of the world that are broken and maybe they they range from something within your home and you want to bring the will of God and you want to bring the peace of God, the shalom of God, you want to bring the, the helping work and power of God to your home or to your place of recreation or play or your community, your town, maybe to where you work and there's change that God has in mind for you. Maybe you're building a great business, you're doing something, it's all kingdom oriented. God's got a great work that he wants to do in you. And the lesson here, friends, is God may just want you to deal with the enemy within first before you ever can deal with the enemy without you say well rick um i mean some of that makes sense but you know idolatry i mean we don't do that anymore right i mean i I got no tiki sitting on my you know shelf at home that i bow down to and worship and and ask it for blessings not so fast what is idolatry It is this, it is an appeal to powers to satisfy our appetites for a fee, usually our own souls. That's what idolatry is. It's an appeal to powers to satisfy our appetites for a fee, usually our own souls. And we all have appetites, right? And some of them are good and God-given and others are twisted and maybe bent a little bit, but you could recognize them here this morning. We all have an appetite for power or wealth or self-indulgence or comfort or ease of life for sex or security or maybe just some reasonable enjoyment of life or some recognition or accomplishment. Well, guess what, friends? There's lots of powers. There's lots of powers in this world that will come alongside you to meet those 
needs to meet those grand desires and appetites. We got, you know, pornography is waiting at the door for all of you. 24-7, the entertainment culture. There's party politics to just get absorbed in. There's uh, get-rich-quick schemes. And you could get there and before 65 and you could have made it. And of course we mean you have made it financially. There's popularity. There's all these powers that come and they will promise a satisfaction for all these things. And all you have to do is climb up to the top of the hill and lay down at the shrine. That's it. That's all you have to do. And what does that mean? Well, I'm speaking metaphorically, of course. It means you lay down your heart, you lay down your soul, you lay down your energy, copious amounts of your time, your money, your life energy, your integrity, your time, your marriage. It's just for a fee, for a fee. And you will have rain from heaven. Baal will promise it. We seek to find self through our idols, friends. We seek to find ourselves through our idols, you see? And they wind up consuming us in the end. And now I want you to pair that with what Jesus said. Jesus says, come to me and in my name lose yourself and then you will find life. Be ready to lose your life. Instead of just clutching and grabbing to find it, be ready to lose it. And you'll find it in me. So this is idolatry, friend. It's the enemy within and it has to be conquered first. Before you deal with Midian, before your great calling, you have to deal with the oppressor on the inside where compromise taints us and weakens us, where concession to selfish living consumes all our energy for greater things, where selling out our integrity robs us of the moral authority to stand for God in anything. That's the enemy within. You've got to deal with that first before you can attack the oppressor without. And so that's what knocking down Baal has to do with knocking down Midian. You can't stand up against the enemy out there, the one that drives you nuts, you know, the one that's related to your gifts and your calling, the one that you feel God is asking you, yes you, to tackle in the power of his own spirit. You can't do it until, until what? Until you have fought the enemy within. Now, here's the third thing you pull out of these same verses. What if the enemy within is within your family? Remember, it's Gideon's father's sex and religion shrine he's taking down. I asked you at the outset, would you be willing, would you be the first to stop applauding if everyone else around you was applauding wildly for some insane thing, mindlessly worshiping impotent and worthless gods? And you said, yeah, uh, you know, I'd hope so, maybe. Would you? What if all the people applauding were within your family? You know, the people in your circle, the people that you loved and trusted, and the people that breathed life into you. See, I think that knocking down Gideon's dad's monuments was the hardest thing he ever did, and far harder than rushing into the teeth of a camel army. I think it was way harder. And I can relate to that a little bit. When I first became a Christian, I felt the beginnings of a call to descend on me because I felt so profoundly the peace of God fall on me, being reconciled to God through Jesus. I said, everybody needs to know. That's why I'm here. Stand on the stage. I, mean, I felt that sense. Everybody needs to know this. And I could feel that beginning in me. I'm 15 years old. But you know what? That happened, that experience of conversion for me happened in the summertime. And then guess what was facing me? High school. So September comes rolling around, now i got high school, and i got a circle of friends, and they're my family. I mean, I don't just think of them as bad news. They were bad news. I mean, they had pulled me 
and everybody around them into deeply idolatrous behavior. I won't get into the details. But I knew that that's what we did. That's who we are. But I loved them. They were my family. They had pulled me up into popularity, man. I, I, I owed them in some sense. And you know what I felt God saying to me, right? You've got to tear down your idols. And it was that, that very fall that I knew I had to sever myself from that social circle. I had to sever myself from that relationship. The best friend I had had in the world since fourth grade, my best friend, I had to say, we're not hanging out anymore. There's subtlety to how one goes about this, you know? I mean, you do this with gentleness and respect, that whole thing, but you do it. And it was hard. I had to stop applauding when my family was applauding worthless idols. So, what about you? I think God wants you first to deal with the enemy within. Sometimes that means living out your faith at home, no matter the pressures. And it's always first. That always has to come first before your great calling. If you have a family here today, the question in front of you is just simply this. Are you living your faith in front of them first? You know, before you conquer the world for Jesus, right? Before your great work, your marriage, your children, they are your great work. And I want to ask you this, friend. What's the rule in your house? Does everybody just know with a wink and a nudge that we'll talk about Jesus, we'll go to church, we'll have a good show, but at home, we don't live this stuff. And you say, well, in what way? Well, we still believe, we always believe the belief. No, it's not talking about you. when it comes to conflict, you don't do conflict gospel way. When it comes to how you look at outsiders, you don't look at them the way Jesus would look at them. When it comes to living in the Sermon on the Mount, we don't do that. So we have one face for the world and another face inside the four walls of our home. And guess who's watching your children? No. And if you want to create little agnostics or atheists, just keep doing that live incongruently at home than you do in front of the world in terms of your Christian faith. I say that not just anecdotally, I say that with a, a sense of statistical backing. We're now looking at the great numbers of children that are born and raised in Christian homes and they go through the whole youth program and everything and they come and they hit post-secondary education and they leave the faith like that. And now being pulled and they ask why? In most cases it's because there was an incongruence between belief and behavior in their home. So mom and dad are off and they're saving the world and they're doing great stuff, but at home we don't live gospel. We don't live it here because no one thought that the first thing to do was to deal with the oppressor within. It comes here, friends, getting your house in order. This is a biblical principle from beginning to end. Paul will put it like this in 1 Timothy 3, verse 5. If you don't know how to manage your own household, how can you care for God's church? You know, caring for God's church is the big thing, right? It's the big, you know, it's reach and teach and be a part of the thing that God is using to save the world. Well, wait, 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 wait. How can you do that? Unless you're dealing with first things first. So just know, friends, that we want to be with you in this whole enterprise. Did you know that we have an option for our children's programs where it's a co-op? You join in as a parent. It just makes it easy for you as a parent to help pass your faith on to the next generation. So you bring your faith home and guess what? You could serve then alongside other AC3 volunteers and leaders who want to instill the faith of Jesus in the next generation with you. And you do it together. And we feel like we're a team in this thing. And we're all going to stumble and fall along the way. But we're going to say, first things first. And our first great work 
is to our wife or husband and our children. It's good for your faith development. It's great for your kids and our volunteers. It's going to be great. So sometimes, friend, the bravest thing you do, the bravest thing that you do before we attempt any great work is simply this, bring faith home. Live it out before the people who know you the best, that which matters the most. And here's what Jesus said about this. Listen, be faithful with little and you will be entrusted with much. And that's basically the order in which it happens exactly in Gideon's life. Here's a fourth and final observation. Gideon confronts the enemy within. He does it promptly. But when does he do it? When does he do it? He does it at night. Why? Because he's scared. Because he's afraid. Now, here is the call on your life. If you are in this room and you're a follower of Jesus, those things which stand against your high calling, you must bravely sacrifice. And I mean ruthlessly. I mean you have to knock them over with extreme prejudice. You don't treat them like they're cute, cuddly little, well, he's just, and look, I just put him in his room and he destroyed the place. Isn't he so cute? No, you destroy them with extreme prejudice. You knock them over ruthlessly. You don't coddle them. Why? Because they are keeping you from your destiny. They are an impeding anchor. You know, just like we talked about a vision cast this year. You smash them, but Gideon did all that kind of like a coward. He did it at night. And you know what I have to say about that? So what? So what? You smash your idols, even if it means doing it in the middle of the night, just do it. And I had to get in on the Colin Kaepernick thing, so I made my own, so I made my own, my own mean. You smash your idols, even if it means doing it in the middle of the night, just do it. Just do it. Doing the hard thing by night because you're scared to do it by day, it doesn't matter at all so long as you do it. Just do it. And as one Christian teacher famously said, obedience was essential, heroism optional. Just do it. And damn the torpedoes, forget the consequences, obedience is everything. By day or by night, quietly or loudly, it doesn't matter. You will get pushback, grumbling, resistance, threats, scorn. You will get it from what? From the enemy within. From inside your own appetites, from friends or members of your own household, count on it. And so you're going to bring them down and start building up a new life. You'll start to read your Bible and start to pray every day, knowing you have to nourish the life that God has supernaturally infused into you by forgiveness and grace. You know, that's going to crimp somebody's style in your, in your world. You, you insist on just coming to church, just weekly. You say, you know, we're going to make a commitment of this to sustain what God is doing by being a part of a community of people that share in our devotion to Jesus. Guess what? Someone is going to call you a freak. That's just going to happen. You'll root out besetting sins by deciding to get involved in trusting relationships within the body of Christ, and you're going to get real, and you're going to get healed, and someone is going to be offended by your confessional lifestyle. Just count on it. Someone's going to be shocked and amazed that you got so real, but you're doing it because this is the life Jesus called you to. Just count on it. You're going to get pushback from the enemy within. You start to live and share the good news with members of your own household and you do it with gentleness and grace. And it doesn't matter. Someone's going to call you names. It's going to happen. You just count on it. You start to tithe or serve in simple obedience to first principles and a fire may come down on you. Resistance from your own spouse. Resistance from your children. Resistance from the oppressor within. Gideon got it. 
and so will you. But listen, I have a promise for you. And this is from the story of Gideon, but it's also from my own life, and I could march a bunch of you up here, and you tell the same story. You take that first faith-filled step to oppose the enemy within. You take that first faith-filled step, likely something in you or something in your own household, and you just watch. God will meet you there in power. God will prove himself in that first small step, and likely not before. That's the way he does it. He will prove himself in that first small step and likely not before. And then when that happens, just get ready. Get ready. Because God is preparing you for your great work. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would prepare the church for our great work, wherever it is, to participate in the kingdom mandate to reach and to teach. In doing so, Lord, give us the courage and bravery we're going to need to tear down our idols. And, oh, Lord, that we would represent you well because we have dealt with first things first. And our own home is in order. And not perfectly, God, we understand that, but decisively. And may may this be a moment of decision for anyone in this room. Give them the courage to do exactly what you're calling them to do right now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, friends, I'm so glad you're here and taking in the challenge of Gideon. This is going to be awesome, these four weeks. So glad you're here. Hey, listen, invite a friend next week because we're going to come back and talk about signs. I mean, who doesn't want to know about how to do the signs thing with God? God, give me a sign. We'll talk about that next week. Invite a friend. We'd love to have him. And now in two minutes, we're going to do Extended, where you get a chance to talk back, Q&A, and we go deeper into the